Welcome back to the Golfer's Journal podcast, everyone, presented by Titleist, the number one ball in golf. My name's Tom Coyne, senior writer at the Golfer's Journal. And as the Women's PGA Championship rolls here into Philadelphia, my hometown, and to the Aronimic Golf Club, uh, just outside Philadelphia technically, but right around the corner, we decided to take a dive into some Aronimic history that you probably won't be hearing about on the broadcast. You'll probably hear plenty about Donald Ross and the brilliant Aronimic restoration by Gil Hands, and it is brilliant. Um, but as Casey Bannon and I discovered when we played there this summer, while Casey was on his Golfer's Journal van barnstorming tour of America, two of American golf's most important yet unknown figures are both connected to Aronimic. And today we're going to bring you their stories and shed some much-deserved light on the lives of Aronimic's two Johns. Before we do, we should mention that a highlight of our visit to Aronimic was watching Golfer's Journal distribution guru Mark Warman post a breezy 68 from the tips. Bravo, Mark. And as he did, he was, of course, playing the Titleist Pro V1 because when you've got a chance to play a place like Aronimic to try and prove your game at a course where the pros play, you want to play the ball that's been proving it year after year after year. We also want to thank Scotty Cameron, Link Soul, Titleist, Oakley, New York Private Bank and Trust, and Links and Kings for their continued support of the journal. And we hope all of you are enjoying 13. Casey, your story in 13 about a country club quite unlike any I've ever visited before was a favorite of mine, a total highlight of 13. So thanks for jumping on today to help us tell the story of the lost Johns of American golf. Well, that, that really means uh, a lot coming from you, Tom, my favorite golf writer in America. And I'm just sitting here counting the days until uh, a course called America comes out. Um, doubt it'll be better than a course called Aronimink. It, it, it was certainly Aronimink that day was a highlight of our tour. Um, and even cooler, we got to we got to tee it up with your your old buddy from from the Caddy Shack, Jeff Kitty. Indeed, we did. Yeah, Jeff Kitty is the best head pro at Aronimink. We really appreciate him having us out. So let's get our listeners out there on the course with us and with Jeff at Aronimic and find out what he might know about the two Johns that we were searching for. So here on the eighth hole at Aronimic with my good friend Jeff Kitty, PGA, head professional. We go ways back, Jeff, to your days before Aronimic. Over at Applebrook, brief stint at Pine Valley. How long have you been here? This is my 13th year at Ronald. 13? Gee, time is flying. Yeah. Jeez. I was going to call you up to get on Applebrook the other day. All right. <laughs> well, thanks for having us out. Absolutely. And it's quite a hole to start talking on. It's a beast. If people, This is a hole people would remember from the BMW, etc. The 8th, the downhill par 3. Today we were playing it at 237. Guarded water in the front. Uh, how did we do? Anybody hit the green? We went over. We had a, we had a big over. Casey's been hitting it well. Uh, Jeff is still very much a stick. Plays a lot of golf, from what I hear. I'm supposed to. We're yeah, no, he said it's his job. <laughs> and um, and what a great job! What a special place. So you have the ladies coming in soon. Uh, how is the build-up, the excitement for the women's PGA? 
you know, it's been a different year for build up for a tournament just because of the year that we're in. But, you know, the club's still pretty excited uh, to be hosting uh, the women's major, the women's PGA. It will be the first club to host all three PGA professional championships, the PGA championship, the senior PGA, and now the women's KPMG women's PGA. I did not know that. That is really cool. It's, yeah, you said it is going to be different, not a big build out here. How do you think the women are going to do? I mean, I'm always struck going to whenever I do get to get to a an LPGA event, just the stripe show they put on. And this is a golf course. You know, it can be all you want it to be in terms of length. Do you have any idea what they're thinking about in terms of playing it? Yeah, um, ladies don't miss the fairways, so. Yeah, you know, we have a decent amount of width, so they – well, if, unless we get firm and fast, you know, they'll they'll hit a lot of fairways. But we've had some of the ladies come through and, and play practice rounds. Um, and they said that yardages that we're going to play, that I've told them they're, they're going to play when they go out and play, they say it's a long golf course. Yeah. And in, a couple of the ladies that we have had play are the, some of the longer players. And they said, you know, it's going to be a challenge for, for a lot of the ladies uh, as far as the length. Uh, and Pace, Casey just made the most ridiculous three folks um, that I think has ever been recorded in any major golf event here at Aronomic. Spinning 30-yard pitch shots out of the rough. Casey, tell us about that up and down. Yeah, so I had a bear lie over there, and uh, it said WWTCD, what would Tom Coyne do, and just sort of hit a little blade spinner, and it worked out all right. Jeff, this is a... Uh, I, I remember 2010 when, you know, they first came here, and it was really the, the first good look uh, of Aronomic for, for a lot of people around the country, um, television-wise, obviously. Um, even then, it felt like 2010, it was a big, big golf course for guys. A decade later, is that still the case? Yeah, I mean, what, what's a big golf course for these for these guys anymore? I mean, That's um, the question, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're a 7,300-yard par 70 with a fair amount of uphill play, and, and we're, you know, by tour standards, we're not, you know, long anymore. Even in 2010, as fast as we played, um, it was more about the firmness of the golf course that was the challenge than the length for sure. Um, I just I just don't know how you make a golf course long enough for for the Bryson DeChambeau's anymore. Is that, uh, is that, are those discussions you guys have as you look forward to 2026? You know, I'm sure um, when Kerry Hagan and his team come in for the Women's PGA, I'm sure he'll start thinking about you know what we will do and look at for 2026, and you know who knows where we'll be in 2026 as far as distance. Well, and, and that time, guys might be hitting it 420 430 you know yeah no question there is no way to plan for it yeah i'm excited for that um big golf course so in terms of the history what do you know about someone who had your job a long long time ago john shippen first african-american head professional i believe in the country i believe you're right yeah it's there's not that much known about his story and i didn't learn until um recently I don't know what tournament was talking about John Shippen, but that he uh, got a start at Aronomic. He did as yeah. a head pro, yeah, which is which is pretty amazing. I believe that, he had come from Shinnecock, uh, yes. from that area, and and made his way down to Philadelphia, and and was uh, was a head, one was a head professional at Aronomic for for a little while. Anybody who knows the name John Shippen most likely believes this as well. Some may even believe that he posed as a Native American to enter the 1896 U.S. Open at Shinnecock, in which he held a share of the lead after round one. But after that, it gets pretty blurry. Well, yeah, we knew there was a, an Aronomy connection 
to ship in just based off what's available online. But in asking around about his legacy at the club, the historical cupboard was rather bare, wasn't it? I mean, Aronimink has moved around over the years. I think it even had a name change, right? It was first called the, the Belmont Golf Society. It's not the Broken Tea Society, but it works. And somewhere in the shuffle, it just seems like his time as a pro there might have gotten lost. Indeed. So we did what we usually do as journalists, and we picked up the phone, right? It was hard enough to find shipping experts, but we were very fortunate to land upon the expert on um, John Shippen, on the history of African-American golf in America, and we found Lane Demas, a history professor at Central Michigan University and the author of Game of Privilege in African-American History. Well, uh, he was born in 1879 in the Washington, D.C. area. His father had been a slave in Virginia who was freed by the Civil War. Uh, he, His father lived an interesting life coming out of slavery. His father went to Howard University, became a Presbyterian missionary. Um, and so the young Shippen was... Uh, with his father and his family, spent several years traveling around to various Presbyterian uh, native missions where his father served. And eventually his father ended up moving to the Shinnecock Native Reservation on Long Island. And that's when John was about, I think, nine years old or so. He was a very young kid. Well, so at nine or ten, this is such a cool story. Shippen lands in Shinnecock, but is there even a golf course there yet? He, this he, I know he arrived at Shinnecock before the country club had been built. Uh, he arrived at Shinnecock before the USGA had formed a few years later. Uh, but within within a few years, Native Americans helped construct the club there. The Shinnecock Native um, contribution at Shinnecock is well known. Um, many of the first caddies at Shinnecock were Native American caddies. And um, through his father's work, Presbyterian work with the Shinnecock Indians, John got into, made friends, uh, young Native kids, especially one friend named Oscar Bunn, who was a Native caddy at Shinnecock. And John began to work as a caddy at, at Shinnecock. He very early showed significant golfing prowess and talent, along with Oscar Bunn, his his friend. Um, they were sort of trained by Willie Dunn, um, who was the kind of well-known Scottish uh, designer of the course and, and player. Uh, we know that by the time he was 16, uh, John Shippen was already shooting in the 70s. Uh, he shot like 78, uh, which was his personal best. And that was only five or six shots worse than than Dunn's course record at that point, which was 72. Um, so there was, a, uh, he also wasn't just caddying. Uh, he, by the early 18, uh, by the time we get to the 1896 US Open, he was making clubs. He was sort of teaching uh, at at Shinnecock, he was really already working his way up in the club as um, a kind of an authority player, not uh, not just uh, a caddy, obviously. So he's got all the makings of a club professional, except, of course, at this time, his race. How does he begin to transcend that even before 1900? So his story really 
hits the limelight in 1896 with the second U.S. Open. Um, the it was natural for the club to host the the second U.S. Open. Shinnecock was one of the, I think the five sort of founding clubs of the USGA. Um, the members at Shinnecock really wanted one of their players to show off and compete uh, in these competitions. And the U.S. Amateur was was the day before the U.S. Open in 1896. Uh, so they wanted their best players to to participate. They encouraged John Shippen and Oscar Bunn to participate. They signed them up. They said, these are our best players. We want we want them to compete in the in the open. Um, and he did. Uh, he and I, I found newspaper, by the way, newspapers before the tournament talking about this far and wide. I found a newspaper in Kalamazoo, Michigan that was running a story the week before the tournament saying this tournament's going to happen and we're, we're still waiting for an American-born professional to compete with these Englishmen and Scotsmen and this black kid might might be it. He could win this thing. So he was already on people's radar screens even before the tournament. And remember at that point, they're basically a golf pro was somebody from Scotland or somebody from England. Every participant the year before in the US Open had been a Scottish or English-born professional so really, John Shippen is and Oscar Bunn are the first two American-born golf professionals, and one was black and one was Native American. So that in and of itself is sort of exceptional. Um, even more so, uh, the day before the U.S. Open, during the U.S. Amateur, a group of English and Scottish pros scheduled to play the Open the next day approached the head of the USGA, Theodore Havemeyer, we don't know how many, if it was all of the, the field. And the field was pretty small in those days. Maybe 30 players, I think, or so competed in the 1896 Open. But a group of them approached Havemeyer and said, uh, you can't have a black kid compete in this competition. Otherwise, we won't, we won't participate. And we know that Havemeyer rebuked them and said, uh, the competition will go on and John Shippen will play. It's interesting, the significance of that, on the one hand, it wasn't particularly a revolutionary act to have a black caddy, a Native American caddy, be considered a golf pro. Because remember, in that day, the U.S. Amateur was the more elite tournament. The The USGA configured, you know, anybody was a golf pro if you worked at a golf course, essentially. And so there wasn't the prestige, social, cultural, otherwise associated with being a pro uh, but it was revolutionary, I think, or significant that Havemeyer rebuked these big names in the game, the Scottish and the English pros, and said, no, the tournament's going on whether you want it to or not with these guys in the field. We also know that a lot of people who were probably there that day for the 1896 U.S. Open wasn't aware that this had happened. But we do know that John was aware. So John Shippen, when he stepped on the first tee, knew that the day before a significant chunk of the field had tried to ban him uh, and tried to get him out of the tournament. So you can imagine what he would have felt uh, stepping onto the first tee. Also, it was a lot of pressure. He was paired with a man named Charles McDonald, who had won the U.S. Amateur the year before, who was a, apparently a Cracker Jack player. Um, so the, the stakes were high. I imagine the pressure was quite high. First round, both rounds that would take place the same day is just a two round tournament. The morning round, um, is it was an amazing round. If you think about it, John Shippen shot 78, which was his personal best. He equaled his personal best at the course 
the moment when it counted the most. His playing partner, Charles McDonald, apparently shot 82 or 83 and was so angry he quit and bowed out of the tournament. <laughs> so, you know, this was intense competition. He, he outplayed his playing partner. And in fact, he was tied for the lead. There were six or seven guys who shot 78 that first opening round. Um, the afternoon round, it also meant, because his playing partner quit, it also meant that the afternoon round, the second round, John had to play alone. I imagine there was a lot of pressure there. He had to play the, the final round of the U.S. Open alone. Okay, so he's, he's tied going into the final round of the U.S. Open after nearly being banned, and now he's playing alone. I, I, I personally feel like I've heard a lot about his first round, and that's 78, but then it gets difficult to track. So, Lane, what happens next, and what does this performance do for the rest of his golf career? That is also an exceptional round because by my calculations, he had a great round going. He was absolutely vying for the lead and he reached the 13th hole, which was apparently, he said later in life, a short, easy par four, sliced his drive onto a, a, a dirt road, which was sort of covered with sand. So it was sort of like hitting it onto the beach. And in the days before a sand wedge and all of this, this was a disaster um, John says he couldn't get it off the road, <laughs> hitting it up the road at this 13th hole. It was a disaster. He made 11. Um, so he was seven over par on a par four, 13th. Um, and that ruined his chances to win. But if you look at the final scores, he was only seven shots off the lead. He finished like tied for fifth. So if he makes par on the 13th hole, we could be talking about the first black man to win a major 1896, not 1997. Uh, so he was that close. Um, so so he, he finished uh, the first American-born professional to, to take home a paycheck. Uh, he, he, he won something like 10, 20 bucks, uh, finishing tied for fifth. Um, this is the whole story that most people want to remember and, and that was so long neglected in, in the history of golf. I'm also fascinated because, you know, the story goes on. He was only 16, 17 years old when that happened. He goes on to have this incredible sort of career that spans the nadir of segregation in in golf. So he continues for a time before Jim Crow has set in, before the PGA is established, before there's a clear exclusion of black pros. He goes on, he competes in five U.S. Opens before World War I. His brother, Cyrus Shippen, even competed with him in the 1899 U.S. Open. That was in Baltimore as well, in the South. That was in a uh, Baltimore Country Club. I think the only, the last time uh, two uh, black players would play at Baltimore Country Club until like after World War II. Um, so they're breaking these incredible barriers um, into the early 20th century. I think the last is the 1913 U.S. Open was his last appearance. He finished tied for fifth again at another U.S. Open. Um, and then he you know, we already don't know a lot about him, but he then he really drifts into this world of black golf that we know even less about. And to me, that's fascinating. So we know that for a time, he's able to, to work his way up in the world of white golf. He serves as a club pro at a series of elite courses like Aronimic, um, for a while, Maidstone Club in, in the Hamptons. There's a, there's a list of sort of elite white clubs that he's interacting with. He employed a white caddy. He's the first uh, black, serious black player in history who employs a white caddy, a gentleman who goes on to be uh, uh, 
work at Maidstone for many years, but was John Shippen's caddy in the early 1900s. Um, but then slowly but surely he drifts away from that sort of elite white golf world and into the world of segregated golf. So by the 1920s, after World War One, when Jim Crow is really hardened, he's clearly excluded from the PGA once it's established in 1916. It, it's uh, it's clearly established as an all-white organization. So uh, by that point, John Shippen begins to work at black country clubs. He'll spend many years at Shady Rest Country Club, which is the most important black country club in American history. Uh, Shippen will work there for a number of years. He'll continue to play tournaments as well. By the time we get a, a real black golf tour, that emerges, it's it's not like Negro League Baseball, which is there very early. With golf, you have to wait until the mid to late 1920s before you get the United Golfers Association, uh, an all-black golf tour. By that point, John Shippen was already nearly 50 years old, so his best playing days were behind him. But he still was a part of that. He helped. He was there at a landmark tournament, sort of the National Colored Open in 1925. He's there at the first UGA National in 1926. He won a few UGA events. People don't forget. People forget he won the 1926 UGA tournament at Shady Rest. A few years later, he won the UGA tournament at Shady Rest as well. So he's still winning tournaments on the Black Golf Tour uh, well into his uh, late 40s and 50s. And uh, and these events drew crowds. So the, there's five hundred. There's a gallery of five hundred people who watched John Shippen win this Black Tour event in 1926, right? Which is likely a larger gallery, I would note, than who were there for the 1896 U.S. Open. So his life goes on. His career goes on. He has this amazing career in in the world of black golf. Um, that I think is just as fascinating as this incredible story of sort of that day in 1896 um, when he competed in the U.S. Open. And then there's another John uh, in your history at Aronimic, uh, Johnny McDermott, which is hugely important to golf history in America, but someone that's often overlooked. Um, but he started you know, in doing my research for a course called America, always be plugging your books, Jeff, that's important. <laughs> um, I learned about John McDermott and that he started at Aronimic. He was a caddy at the, the first location uh, of Aronimic Golf Club. It was first, the, it was the Belmont Athletic Club. It was down off of Belmont Ave down in the city. Right. And uh, it then became Aronimic Golf Club, and he was a caddy down there uh, at that location. <laughs> All right, I'm over here. I did not hit a great drive. Um, I swung a little bit too out of my shoes and uh, pay the price. But my caddy so far has found a lot of great lies, Casey. A lot of, you know what I mean? When great, I say a lot of great, great lies. Great caddies out here, none better than uh, obviously lies. John McDermott. Yeah, we were just talking about Johnny McDermott, old Johnny, first US Open champion of American descent, or what the hell, first American US Open yeah, champion. But you know what's interesting, Tom? Uh, um, Francis we met gets all the love. All the love. But, you know, and obviously he was, I want to say, discriminated upon or looked down upon for his caddy status. John McDermott went back-to-back as a caddy in 11 and 12. Yes. And uh, nobody made a fuss. No one makes a fuss, and it's it's got to be, you know, because of McDermott's sort of tragic, I suppose, his tragic story afterward that he doesn't go on to have, you know, we met goes on to have uh, 
a big place in American golf right. after that victory. And and McDermott, you know, struggles. And I guess within five years, he's in a he's committed to a mental institution. He's, he collides with a boat. Yes, yes, on his way back, I guess, from the British Open. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an accident, and this is around the ti- time of the Titanic. You know, there's an accident on the seas. His boat, uh, they all survive, but right. I guess they had to jump in lifeboats and stuff. And that, and that sort of, uh, if that had, they say that might have had a lot to do with his um, sort of mental state that uh, that he was having nervous breakdowns. Go Mark just did a good shot. Go make a four of them. Yeah, I gotta make a four from here. Okay, so here we are again, Tom. A lot of I guesses and apparently's I heard in there. Uh, who'd you end up bringing to learn more about about this, John? Johnny Mack. Yeah, I was able to track down my good friend John Burns. I've known John for a number of years, going back to my caddy days, and he grew up in the same Philadelphia neighborhood as Johnny McDermott. You know, many years later, but he done all the research. He's working on a Johnny McDermott book. And I thought, this is the guy that we've got to talk to. So Johnny McDermott um, was actually born in West Philadelphia, in the uh, concessing neighborhood of West Philadelphia, uh, in the family home, uh, which was obviously common at that time, in August of 1891. Um, And uh, largely uh, Irish immigrant uh, neighborhood. And, you know, blacksmiths and all kinds of different trades. And his father um, was a mailman, was a letter carrier. And so he is the he was the oldest of three children, uh, two younger sisters, and um, took to the game of golf at nearby Aronimic Golf Club, which at the time uh, was actually known, as you know, uh, Tom, as uh, the Belmont uh, Golf Association or Belmont Cricket Club and Belmont Golf Association. Um, and it literally was located a block away from the family home. And that's where the original location was. And then as a caddy, where did he work on his game? He uh, would would practice uh, in between caddying rounds and after he caddied uh, on the grounds there of uh, what was a, a would become Aronimic. And um, uh, slight in stature, but carried a big punch. And um, and. and you know, played with a number of his fellow caddies, but really was more of an introvert, preferred to play by himself uh, and practice by himself and quickly rose up the ranks, uh, shooting the best score in the 1907 uh, All-City Caddy Championship. And from there, uh, just two years later, we'd play in his first U.S. Open in 1909. Um, And then in 1910, made an improbable run um, tied for first place at uh, the Philadelphia Cricket Club, St. Martin's course, um, for the U.S. Open and, and lost in the playoff the next day. The three years before, he was playing in a city caddy championship uh, you know, to, to make a run in the U.S. Open and tie for first uh, to get into a playoff was pretty impressive. Um, however, 1910 was also significant because he won the Philadelphia Open um, uh, also at cricket, uh, the cricket club. And, you know, that was his first professional win. And so from there, he, you know, he became more determined, um, not unlike the Rocky movie, right? I mean, everyone forgets the first Rocky, he actually lost to Apollo, uh, didn't win. 
but you know he, he fought back, and that's exactly what McDermott did. And so in 1911, in Wheaton, Illinois, at the Chicago Golf Club, he, he literally altered the course of history in our game. You know, quite frankly, uh, specifically here in the United States, um, and and you know shocked the world and won the 1911 U.S. Open. Uh, the next year, 1912, um, he repeats at the Country Club of Buffalo, which it was Buffalo's second location. Um, Grover Cleveland is what it's called today. And, um, yeah, one, one again in 1912 and essentially was one shot away from, from winning three in a row, which is when you look at it that way is, is quite impressive. So he defends his title in 1912. Uh, he also wins the Philly Open yet again at uh, White Marsh, which is just outside Philadelphia. Um, and then 1913 um, really has, um, you know, arguably his, his greatest year, although he doesn't win the U.S. Open. Uh, he wins again the Philly Open at Marion's New East course, also outside Philadelphia. He wins the Shawnee Open just up from Philadelphia, about an hour and a half up towards the Poconos, um, uh, which ironically was Tillinghass's first design. Uh, and he also wins the Western Open uh, down in uh, uh, Memphis, the Country Club of Memphis. And what's significant about that, Tom, is uh, the Western Open actually was largely considered a major at the time and, and was for years after the fact, by the way. Um, but he also was the first American to win the Western Open. So he really goes on a prolific run there, essentially winning, um, you know, seven tournaments, you know, in that time span um, and really was set, you know, to be, you know, one of our greatest golfers of all time, you know, certainly American golfers and certainly, you know, a pioneer. That's without question. Well, so he actually should have three-peated, which for me makes this narrative as we met as America's last hope in 1913 even more confusing. Yeah, so the 1913 Open, of course, uh, U.S. Open, uh, we know is uh, Francis Wimet's Open, and, and rightfully so. Um, Brookline kid, very much like McDermott, down the street, caddy, um, you know, goes on to uh, beat Borden and Ray um, in spectacular fashion. Um, but what people, you know, some people anyway, don't really uh, realize is that just a few weeks before at the Shawnee Open, McDermott lapped those guys. I mean, just annihilated them, uh, both Varden and Ray, to the point where they both said that he was the best golfer in the world, period. Um, he goes up to Brookline, uh, doesn't have his full game, which certainly I'm familiar with. Uh, and, uh, uh, I think he finishes top 10, but he, you know, out of the money and, and, and doesn't win. And, and, and we met takes the trophy. So, um, you know, this is all speculative. This is, you know, my opinion, but, you know, at the time, you know, the amateur is, is really seen as more of the um, prestigious type of uh, class. And, and therefore, if you're, um, if you're winning uh, championships as an amateur, as opposed to, a professional, God forbid, you're a professional, you know, making money in our game. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's seen as, you know, held in higher regard. And so 
uh, that was largely a part of uh, we Mets, um, you know, notoriety. That said, I mean, obviously, uh, Francis, we met very accomplished and went on to have his own, you know, significant and accomplished career. So when exactly does it start to go downhill for Johnny Mac? Because it sounds like he's in a really good place in 1913. Sure. Um, so uh, 1914, he plays in, uh, you know, what was then the British Open. I guess today we call it the Open Championship. Um, ties for fifth highest ever by uh, an American. Um, returns the next year. And because of all the connecting, obviously, you're, you're taking boats at this time. Um, because of all the different connections via boat from America to, to play in the British Open, he, he actually misses one of the interchanges or exchanges and arrives late to the championship. The RNA actually was going to give him an exemption and say, hey, you can, you know, you can tee it up. Go ahead. You're Johnny McDermott. He actually deferred. He actually said, you know, that, that, that wouldn't be right. That wouldn't be fair um, to the rest of the field. So he doesn't play. Not a big deal, but on the way home, his ship gets hit by another ship. The ship that he's traveling in gets hit by another ship. That is a big deal. Um, and that rattled him a little bit. And essentially, you know, among other things, he, he most likely thought his life was in danger. Uh, he did get rescued among other passengers. But you could just go back a couple of years, what major you know, ship accident had occurred, which killed thousands of people, the Titanic. So he comes back home um, and is dating a girl up in New England, in the Boston area. And uh, But he's not the same, a little rattled. And his uh, girlfriend's parents, and again, I'm gleaning a lot of the research I did, so um, didn't really approve of their daughter dating a essentially a grown-up caddy and that's really what you know club professionals were seeing at the time there there wasn't a pga tour that wouldn't be for another you know 50 odd years so um uh because of his erratic behavior coupled with perhaps his girlfriend's parents not approving he finds himself in in a sane asylum up in new england uh, gets transported down here to Philadelphia and ultimately transported out to the suburbs here uh, in Montgomery County uh, called Norristown, town called Norristown, where he gets incarcerated into Norristown State Hospital, which at the time was um, called the Insane Asylum. Um, and essentially at 24-odd years, um, he gets put away for the rest of his life and dies at 80 years old. John, so any idea how he might have been treated with a more modern understanding of mental health? Essentially, the, the, the feedback and research I've been given was ultimately whatever his ailment would have been, um, it would have been treated as an outpatient type scenario. He would have been you know, placed on some meds and um, you know, would have been able to carry on a, a pretty much regular life. Um, so unfortunately that was not the case. Uh, he was, he was put into this uh, state of affairs and um, too often at this time, unfortunately um, a patient sort of becomes in institutionalized. And as a result, 
it, it becomes their norm. It becomes their comfort. And, um, you know, there, there was very little movement for him to be able to uh, be released. He, his younger sisters at this point, adults, young women, um, would try to um, advocate for his release. And, and I have original letters um, to the state, you know, uh, handwritten letters, beautiful handwritten letters, um, advocating for his release and that they would take care of him. Um, but unfortunately that, you know, went largely on deaf ears. So did he ever play golf again? Um, there are stories out there and I've been able to interview firsthand accounts of folks that actually played with Johnny McDermott. And so, uh, one, uh, he did come out of the hospital approximately 15 years into being incarcerated uh, and played in some tournaments, but he, he, you know, he just didn't have the fire anymore. He didn't have the swing. Um, so he played in a couple of professional events, but the, the real noteworthy thing, and I, I found really, really fascinating is that he was allowed to uh, come and go on the weekends. His sisters would pick him up from the hospital and they would drop him off in an area golf course, Philly cricket, Marion, White Marsh, you know, you name it all the area courses that existed at the time. And he would play. And so he would play with members. He would play with whoever was there at the time, sometimes a young kid. And some of those young kids are still around today. One case, um, this gentleman didn't even know who Johnny McDermott was. He just, you know, this, you know, quote unquote, old man showed up in a wool suit with hickory sticks. And uh, he seemed a little odd. Um, but would shoot 76, say nice game and go back in his car with his sisters and back to the hospital. Um, so there's accounts like that, which are, which are really compelling, um, you know, that are in the book, um, you know, as well as the fact that, you know, the PGA of America, which was established in 1916, you know, which essentially today is, you know, our club pros association, um, you know, this band of brothers, which would ultimately obviously become band of brothers and sisters, but this band of brothers that gathered, um, their first philanthropic act was to provide for the care for Johnny McDermott. And, and today, you know, obviously the PGA morphed into um, the tour and the tour kind of split off, but um, all the charity dollars that are raised by the tour today, you know, are largely, you can largely trace back to this initial effort done by the PGA of America. So, you know, it was really refreshing to see that. And I have those original papers, uh, which I get into, you know, as far as the, the philanthropic history of our game. Wow. How about that, Tom? After racism, class systems, and mental health shaming, we finally get some good news. We found two Johns. That is some good news there, Casey. So why don't we end with a good note? And everyone, enjoy the tournament at Aronimic. It's the first time they've hosted a women's major, so it's going to be a lot of fun to see them take on that Donald Ross beast of a course. Uh, before we go, big thanks to Lane Demas. Thank you, Johnny Burns, my buddy, for coming back on. Uh, thanks as well to our two Johns, John Shippen and Johnny McDermott, for all they did to change the game of golf. <laughs>